What a wonderful Sabbath today is, isn't it? The Lord blesses. The Lord has blessed us this past week. Wednesday, we... How many were here Wednesday night? Let me see your hands. Okay, how many were here last night? A few more hands went up. How many are here today? Just checking. We've been blessed to be able to have Dr. Dupre be here. Um, We have something in common. He's got a good friend that he works with that is a good friend of mine, Jay Gallimore, the president of the Michigan Conference. And I hope you go back and tell him that I'm doing okay. Jay was the one that mentored me into the ministry, and we had a wonderful time together. Blessed man. And I knew when I heard Brent say that... that uh, we were going to have our guest speaker to come, and he says, do you know him? And I didn't really know his name, but he says, well, he works with Jay Gallimore, and I knew that's all I needed to know, because Jay just doesn't pick anyone. So we are blessed to be able to have, have Ron here. I know you will be blessed as he speaks, and that the Holy Spirit will bind us all together in one accord. Thank you, Pastor Bob. Good morning. So good to see you today here in God's house of worship. We've come to spend uh, these precious moments with Him. But make sure you do yourself and all of us a favor. We have these little devices sometimes in our, in our pockets. Anybody have one of these? That we sometimes forget about. Just a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were attending a, the Vienna Symphony Orchestra. A thousand people. And they made an announcement at the beginning of the concert and they said, would everybody please turn their cell phones off? And I was amazed for the entire hour and a half, not one cell phone amongst a thousand people ever could be heard. So I thought, if they can do that for the Vienna Symphony Orchestra, how much more can we not do it for God? So do yourself and do us a favor. I know unless you are a medical person or one of those EMTs, you then put it on buzz, but uh, I'm turning mine off as I speak right now. I've been embarrassed to have mine go off in my pocket while I'm speaking. So I know exactly what I mean when I talk about this. These are useful devices, but at times they can be a, an unnecessary distraction. You know what I mean? You will notice, by the way, in your bulletins that... Today, it says, under my title, it says, Thrive. I'm going to ask you to take a pen or pencil and improve on it. My entire series, Friday night, Wednesday night, today, and this afternoon, the the overall series is Thrive. Subtitle, How to Enjoy the Journey with Jesus in the Difficult Dilemmas of Life. But specifically today's sermon, write it in, from Barter, B-A-R-T-E-R, to Martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R. Just write that in, from Barter to Martyr. That's the title of today's message, Barter to Martyr. By the way, the reason I use the word thrive, in case you aren't aware, Dan Buettner, something about Seventh-day Adventists. Remember Dan Buettner, National Geographic? He studied the Blue Zones and he discovered there was one not far from here. You know what the Blue Zones are? Where people live to a hundred years or more. Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan... Costa Rica, and guess where? Loma Linda, California. Right. He studied the Blue Zones, discovered that, and I had the opportunity to meet and get to know Marge Jeton, who just passed away recently, and uh, she actually came and spoke at one of my evangelistic series. I had her as the example. She was 101 or 102 at that time. But it was nice to have Marge around. But Dan Buettner did a subsequent study, and it's now been published by National Geographic, called Thrive. It's a study of where people throughout the world are the happiest. Bad news, folks. America is, USA is number 20 on the list of happy countries. You need to know the real truth. Uh, This is the way people see themselves. Obviously, it's subjective, but they ask people in different areas of life, are you happy and why are you happy? But it's a fascinating book. And that's why I chose the theme Thrive, because what's interesting, National Geographic has now discovered the happiest people around the world. Number one, they have safety and security. Guess what? We have ours in Jesus Christ. Alright? The people who have, number one, who have close family relationships, they are happy. 
I'm giving you a quick overview of the book, 250 or 300 pages. And what's interesting, the people who have a strong faith in God are the happiest people. Did you know that Mexico is listed as number three of the happiest countries in the world? And yet they have all the problems, all the drugs. Guess why they're happy? According to Dan Buechner and National Geographic, they're happy because many Mexicans have a close walk with the Lord through their Roman Catholic faith. And they found that they are much happier than Americans because of their connection with God. Fascinating. They also found out that people who go to church, listen carefully, four times per month are much happier. Did you hear what I just said? What's four times per month? Every week. <laughs> and they found out that people go to church four times a month, they live ten years longer. That's a fascinating book. And I, after I read the book Thrive, I thought that's what I call this whole series, Thrive. Because... I believe as Christian Seventh Adventists, we, by God's grace, are thriving, looking forward to heaven. And so as we started today, I want you to understand why I've chosen Thrive. Because I am so thankful, and I know you are too, to be a child of the King of the Universe. Right? We have safety, we have security, we have a hope. We look forward and we're thankful that we have the Word of God, which we're going to turn to. Bow with me in prayer a few moments now as we start. Holy Father... As we open your written word, may the message that you have for us today bless our souls. And as we read and dig deeply into your word, may we draw courage from the story, but most importantly, may we draw closer to Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a quick question. By the way, if you have your bulletin on the back, there's a little place you can take some notes. You may want to do that. The uh, late ex-General Conference, ex-ex-ex, former, former, former General Conference President, R.H. Pearson. Anybody remember Robert Pearson? Raise your hands high. Now look around, folks. You see the hands going up? Generally, those are the folks who uh, <clears throat> have not dyed their hair today. You know, you see the gray coming out. And so those of us who know R.H. Pearson, I actually worked for his son, Robert G. Pearson. But Robert H. Uh, Pearson used to say, a short pencil is better than a long memory. So I'm going to challenge you, take out a pencil, take out a pen, you can write down a few verses, so that when you go home, you can review, you can think again about this special story from Scripture today. Very special story, and incidentally, this afternoon, uh, we're just going to correct the times while you have the bullet in front of you. I want you to go to the back before we open the word, and the back it says that I will be sharing with you at 2 p.m. Well, we're going to go eat lunch at Maria's place, and so we're going to make it 2.30. We won't have to rush through lunch too much. So, 2.30, change that on the back, please, 2.30, right there, and it says 5 o'clock. 2.30, and we're moving that other one up to around 4, 4.15, and we'll be done just around Vespers then. Sunset, I understand, here, just before 5 o'clock, is that correct? So we're going to shift those times, but look at the back, I want to correct that there. Uh, we've adjusted it slightly, so this afternoon we will again continue talking about how to thrive, how to enjoy the journey through the difficult dilemmas of life. 2.30 and around 4, 4.15, our final press presentation this afternoon. I've got to ask you a question. Ever happened to you? You're telling a story. Maybe you just come back from a friend's wedding. You haven't seen the friend for a long time and you went to the wedding. And as you're telling the story about the wedding and you're talking about it with excitement, somebody comes rushing in and interrupts your story. Ever happened to you that somebody interrupts what you're saying? You say, hey, hold on, hold on, I'm telling the story. Have, anybody been in, have you been in that interrupted? Let me see the hands. Let me say, a few of you have been interrupted. How many of you love being interrupted? I didn't expect that. None of us myself included, love to be interrupted. Hey, come on, I'm telling a story. However, however, one more question before we get into the word. How many of you have been telling a story and you interrupt yourself? You're telling the story of the wedding and you say, oh, oh, by the way, guess who I saw there? Bob. Bob? You remember Bob? He used to always wear dark glasses. Bob, yeah, yeah, the guy from, you know, he used to sit in the back of class, always, oh, yes, and you start talking about Bob, and then you say, oh, oh, let me tell you about the wedding again. Anybody interrupted yourself? Let me see, don't be afraid, raise them high. That's what it looks like many of us. Guess what, none of us minds interrupting ourselves. It's okay. But you know what's interesting? There's one story in the Bible, a major incredible story, that I believe is a divinely directed, di deliberate digression. 
Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38. If you want to, you can go to the last verse of chapter 37. Chapter 37, verse 36. Chapter 37, verse 36. And I put the title in the meantime and the subtitle on the screen. We're going to use the PowerPoint as well as go to the Word of God. So go with me now to Genesis. You can keep your Bible open, but you can also see what I'm going to share with you here by way of the screen. From barter to martyr, God's grace for the guttermost. By the way, this story in Genesis is an interesting one. Genesis 38. I shared this once, a message, and I remember one of the gentlemen coming up to me later on. He said, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would always read through the book of Genesis. One, two, three, four, five. We'd get to 37. Then they'd skip 38. We were kids. And they'd pick up chapter 39. They'd never read chapter 38. Well, today we're going to preach the unread story. But you know what he said? We always snuck into the bedroom to find out why. Why didn't they read chapter 30? Well, because 38 is a very difficult story. But let's go to the end of 37, the last verse of chapter 37. And it's the final verse there. But before we get there, let me ask you a few questions here. I want to hear your response. Is all scripture really useful? Yes. Next question, what shall we do with Genesis 38? Shall we skip over it, as this gentleman told me his parents always did? What shall we do? Why did God have this story recorded? That's the question we want to address. So, let's go now to the end of chapter 37. I'm using the New King James Version on the screen. Sometimes I'll have other versions there. And last night, if you were here, I explained why I believe it's helpful and useful to do that. So, let's go now to the last verse of chapter 37. It's on the screen. Why don't we read that one together in unison? Are you ready? Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Now, notice the things that I've underlined. Did you notice five major concepts there? The Midianites, right? Who's the him, by the way? Who's the him? Joseph, correct. In Egypt, Potiphar, officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Now, that's the end of chapter, what was that? 37. When you get to 38, you would normally expect chapter 38, verse 1, will pick up the story of Joseph in Egypt. Isn't that right? That's what you'd expect. But you see, Moses doesn't do that. Intentionally interrupt by inspiration the story. Why? Why is 38 sandwiched in the middle of 37 and 39? How do I know? Look at chapter 39, verse 1. Those very five points we just looked at at the end of 37, here they are again in chapter 39, verse 1. What is Moses doing? It's almost like he's saying, oh, oh, by the way, sorry for interrupting myself. Let's get back to the story. Are you with me? Okay? It's an intentional tangent. It's, it's, it's a divinely given interruption in the text. So here in chapter 39, verse 1, Moses says, oh, let's get back to the story of Joseph. Five points I just told you before I interrupted myself. Here they are. Now Joseph, right? Same person, had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, I know there are some technical folk here who have picked up that this verse says Ishmaelites and the other verse said what? Midianites. Yeah, you've been reading carefully. Incidentally, if you go to the book of Judges, chapter 8, around verses 22 to 26, it identifies that the Midianites were Ishmaelites. It's like a Chinese-American or, or a Zimbabwean um, South African. That's where I'm from, South Africa. And we do have, we use the terms sometimes interchangeably. We might say, oh, he's African, or he's uh, African-American, or we, we sometimes. So, as, by the way, a Midianite is an Ishmaelite. They apparently lived in the same area, so those words are used interchangeably. Just wanted you to be aware of that. Five points. But now, what about that sandwich story? What about chapter 38? Why is that story there? And by the way, on the surface, it, it, it's a strange story. It almost sounds like juicy gossip. It, it's, it's kind of the soap opera of the scriptures, if I can use that term, with reverence. Why is this chapter there? So let's go to chapter 38 and let's unpack it. An important vital lesson for us here today. Notice it begins this way. It came to pass at that time. Last night, by the way, we talked about principles of interpretation. And here's one of the things we want you to point out. You look at the context. At that time. It came to pass when? At that time that Judah departed from his brothers. At what time? Ah, let's go back a few verses. To chapter 37, verse 34. What was happening in chapter 37, verse 34? Read with me now. What was the timing? Let's read together. Ready? Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, 
and mourned for his son many days. So at what time is Judah departing? At the time that Jacob, his father, is mourning for whom? Which son? For Joseph. That's right. So keep that in mind. Judah is departing, is leaving home when daddy is crying. But why does Judah leave? Why don't the other brothers leave? How many brothers were they all together, by the way? Twelve. Joseph was done in Egypt. Eleven left. Judah leaves. Ten left at home. Why does Judah leave? Notice. How do I, I'm going to emphasize it. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed. Incidentally, I love the way the King James puts it. Judah went down. Did you notice the King James has that? That's actually literal. It says he went down. Now, topographically, they probably did go down. Downhill from where they were living. But also... You may say that there is, a, as you look at his life, it becomes very clear that Judah is going downhill spiritually as well. Fascinating. So let's unpack that. Why at that time? Well, why did Judah leave? We've got to go back several more verses, about six verses before that. Back up. Notice, and you know the story of Joseph, how he had come down to visit his brothers to find out how they were doing. And as they came, as he came down, the brothers said, there comes the what? Anybody remember what they called him? The dreamer. Let's get rid of him. They decided to kill him. Reuben then was looking for a way to save him. He was wishy-washy, as you know the story. And of course, notice what Judah says. This is Judah speaking now from the New American Bible. Judah said to his brothers, What is to be gained by killing our brother and concealing his blood? Rather, let us sell him to these Ishmaelites instead of doing away with him ourselves. After all, he's our what? Our brother. Our own flesh, his brothers agree. Wait a minute, if he's your brother, how can you sell him into slavery? Are you folk aware that slavery in Egypt was a fate to be feared worse than what? Worse than death. If he's your brother, what should you do? Send him back home. But they didn't want to do that because they knew he was going to tell on them what they had done. Uh, so they didn't want to. But who is the one who said, sell our brother? Who was it? Judah. Barter. Oh, by the way, what did they get for him? Does anybody remember? How many pieces of silver for, jo for Joseph? Twenty pieces? And we don't understand what that really means unless you go back and you study. It's like, oh, I couldn't believe it. Did you know what a shepherd earned back then? There were ten brothers. Baby brother Benjamin was back home. Remember that? And here the ten brothers were. When they sold Joseph for twenty pieces of silver, that, equivalent, that worked out to be two pieces of silver each. Did you know what that was? Three months of wages. Three months of wages. You know, it's about $10,000 on a, on a daily laborer's wage. They made 10000 bucks in today's money per brother. They sold him for the equivalent of $100,000 in today's earning money. Okay? I made a lot of money. Quick! So it wasn't, oh, he's our brother. It's <clears throat> a little bit of let's make money off this guy. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Yes, Judah did begin to feel bad because he didn't want Joseph just to die from starvation. Apparently he's beginning to feel a little remorseful as best we know the story. But now he sells him. Let's move on. What kind of a man was Judah? I would like to say he was a what? A mercenary brother. Let's make money of him. Let's carry on with our, sto our story, because the very next verse, we read chapter 30, uh, 37, verse 34 earlier on. Now we get to 35, after they bring the report. All his sons and all his daughters, Jacob's sons and daughters, arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, for he said, I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Here's the strange thing. The brothers that tried to get rid of Joseph, instead, they are constantly being reminded of him by the father, inconsolably mourning day in and day out. By the back then, a normal mourning period for a normal person was about one week. And here the father weeps every day, in and out. And he says, I will not stop mourning for my son. What should Judah have done, folks? Dad, stop crying. We can't stand it anymore. Please forgive us. Joseph, as far as we know, is still alive. But no, no, no. Judah doesn't do that. He lets his father cry day in and day out. I would suggest that Judah is a hard-hearted son. His father is mourning day in and day out. And what does he do? He packs up and he leaves. Let's go back to that verse. It came to pass that at that time, Judah departed from his brothers and he visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. That's verse 1. But now notice when you get to verse 12, it says... His friend, Hira the Adullamite. Very interesting, as you study the story very carefully, 
Judah makes close friends with Hira. And in fact, you read about it, it, they become really good friends. But there's a problem. There's nothing wrong in making friends with those who are not believers, as long as you make friends in order to bring them to Jesus. Listen carefully. The danger is making friends for the sake of just connecting with those who don't believe in God and you follow them. And the very clear story is that Judah made friends outside, not because he was trying to bring this man to the faith. But sad story, Judah is a worldly young man. As you unpack chapter 38, it becomes more and more clear. Now notice chapter 38 verse 2. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he married her and went into her. Incidentally, if you want to write down these texts, you can start in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis 24, Genesis 28, all those three chapters and all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Bible is replete and repeat in its urging, do not marry outside the faith. You should marry within the faith. Very clear. All the way from Genesis, all the way through the New Testament. Not Judah. Judah now goes and he contracts a conjugal relationship outside of Scripture with the Canaanites. Outside of what he should do. Bottom line, I would suggest he was an unfaithful believer. I know it's an oxymoron, but you know what I mean. An unfaithful believer. Okay, You can't really be, do that, but you know, sometimes we struggle. And here was an unfaithful believer. He now marries outside the faith. And she, going back to the story, verse 3 through verse 5 from the English Standard Version, she conceived and bore a son, and he, notice I underlined it and I put it in bold. Normally, in the ancient Near East, in the culture of the uh, Israelites, the father was to name the son. Now, we have many exceptions shown, and that's, I believe, why it's always listed when the woman names it. But normally, it's the father. Remember the story of John the Baptist? When he was to be born, they came to Zechariah, and they said, What are you going to call your son? Shall we call him Zechariah? No, no, call him John. They come to the father. That's the normal custom. But very interesting we find here, yes, Judah does name the first son, heir. Then it says, she, Judah's wife, conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Interesting. Switch. And then, yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kassib when she bore him. By the way, Kassib wasn't far away. It was Three miles down the road. 5K. It wasn't very far. Now, what's implied here is that Judah is not doing his fatherly responsibilities, what he's normally expected to do. He's supposed to name, and he's not even present when the son is born. I would like to suggest we have an absentee father. And how do I know? Look at the rest of the story. Fascinating. Er, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. In fact, this is the first and only case I know of in the entire Bible where it doesn't tell you what the sin of the man is. He was so wicked, just wicked, and the Lord put him to death. So here is Judah raising rebel sons. How do I know? Look at the next son. It talks about Onan. What he, Onan, did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. In a nutshell, what kind of a man was Judah? Sadly, not only an absentee husband, he was a rebel raising father. As I study the life of Judas, I, what kind of a story is that? Why does God, in a sense, air the dirty laundry of one of the patriarchs? In fact, you notice for scripture reading, you read the story of the prodigal son. This is what I call the original prodigal. The original prodigal. The, the patriarch that was the prodigal. He had left home to go and live in riotous living. We'll see that in a minute. Why does the story here? Incidentally, how many of you have heard, now listen carefully, at least one sermon on the life of Joseph. Raise your hands high. I would like to see that. One sermon like the Joseph. That's about everybody. Next question. How many of you have heard at least one sermon on the life of Judah? Raise your hands high. One, two, three. Wait a minute. Do you get the point? Two brothers. The story of Judah is sandwiched in between the story of Joseph. Oh, why? Why is the story there? Yes, it is true. When you look at the two brothers, and you look at Joseph, let's go to Joseph here, repeatedly, eight times it says, the Lord was with Joseph. You know that, right? Beautiful story. When you go to the life of Judah, the only time you find the Lord's name, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the Lord being against, essentially, because the sons are dying. A fascinating contrast. And if you study the life of Joseph carefully, you find that Joseph uh, shuns sin. And when we're going to see in a moment what Judah does, Judah seeks out sin. Radical difference between the two brothers. Why are both stories there? Well, God willing, next year, I already told my buddy Brent that I'm not going to be traveling. One of the reasons, 
Next year, God willing, I'm writing a book called A Tale of Two Siblings. You've heard of a book by Charles Dickens called what? A Tale of Two Cities. And this book begins this way. It was the best of sons. It was the worst of sons. Because as you study the story of these two brothers, that's exactly what we see here. Unbelievable. Here is Joseph who stands for the right, chapter 39, though the heavens fall. And here is Judah in chapter 38, who looks for a way to fall. That's what it seems like. But why are the stories there in tandem? We're not going to talk about Joseph. You've heard, you've heard sermons on Joseph already. Let's continue. Why did God put this story in? And why am I preaching it today in my series called Thrive, when it's a man who's going downhill? Hold on, the story's not over yet. Let's carry on. Then Judah told Tamar, his daughter-in-law, not to marry. This is verse 11 again at that time, but to return to her parents' home. This is the New Living Translation. She was to remain a widow until his youngest son, Sheila, was old enough to marry her. Notice, parentheses. That's just correct. They put in parentheses. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would also die like his two brothers. You know how interesting it is as parents. If you're a parent, you know what I mean. You always blame the other person. You know, here Tamar marries son number one. Son number one is dead. Tamar marries son number two. Son number two is dead. Incidentally, even in today's society, if a woman marries somebody and he dies, they bury that person. But if she marries another guy and he dies too, guess what they do? They exhume the first body. You know why, right? They take the body out to check. How come two husbands have died in quick succession? There's got to be something fishy here. <laughs> Alright? And so here is Tamar doing the same thing. She's like, I mean, sorry, Judah is doing the same thing. He's saying, oh, I'll give you my third son when he grows up. But the Bible correctly puts in parentheses there. He didn't intend. He was saying, she's bad news, man. No way am I going to have my third son marry her. Back then, that was the custom. The single son who was still at home would marry the widow if the, the former brother didn't have a male son. So that was the leveret system. Fascinating. We don't have time to go into that. But here Judah is lying to his daughter-in-law, saying, go, go, go home. And when Sheila is old enough, you know, so often, and I talk with you, if I'm stepping on her toes, forgive me. But we as parents, parents have a difficult time. And I've fostered, looked after people, don't have my own kids. But it's difficult to see the faults in your own kids. Isn't that true? You can see it so easily in others. But it's a danger. We have to be honest. Notice, so Tamar went home to her parents. Bottom line, what kind of a man was Judah? He was a deceptive father-in-law. Claims one thing, but he means something else. Now, Tamar is not a believer. Please keep that in mind. Tamar is a non-believer, does not believe in God. As you read the story, it's very, very clear. She's a non-believer. Judah has slipped away. He is no longer a practicing believer. As you look at the whole story, you see he's a mercenary brother, a hard-hearted son, worldly young man, unfaithful believer, absentee husband, rebel-raising father, deceptive father-in-law. Obviously, Judah is not living his faith. He has abandoned the belief of his brethren. He has forsaken the faith of his fathers. Judah has slipped out completely. He is not a model to follow a model for morality. In fact, it's the opposite. This is not somebody we want to follow. Let's read further now. Judah's wife, by the way, dies. Now we pick up the story. You'll notice I'm using the New Living Translation. Incidentally, I have it with me here. And I just want to put in a little quick state side tangent. What are you going to call it? This year, I've been reading this Bible for personal devotions. It's a translation. It was, it's a fun one to read. I do have my study Bible, as you notice, the New King James Version. But I want to urge and challenge you, folks, friends, members, visitors, take time to read and feed on the Word. And as you do that, your spiritual life will continue to grow by leaps and by bounds, by just spending that time with Jesus every day. I just got the new Bible for next year. This one was published this year, called the Common English Bible. Yes, I still have my study Bible, but I want to urge you, and this one just was printed this year, 2011. It's the first Bible I bought the year it was printed. Okay? So, this is the Bible I'm going to be using next year. I bought it so that I can start reading my Bible in a new translation. And the reason I do that for personal devotions, every time I try to read a new English translation, I see things in my personal devotions I didn't see before. Then I go back to my study Bible. 
did I miss that? And sometimes it's like, sure enough. <laughs> and so I find out uh, things that really help me grow in my personal experience. I wanted to encourage you, to challenge you to do that. It really brings out many things that you might not have noticed. So let's go now to Genesis 38, verse 15, and the first part of 16 from the New Living Translation. Judah noticed her, a woman by the side of the road, by the way. She was veiled, if you read the scriptures. And as he went by and thought she was a prostitute, since her face was veiled. So he stopped and propositioned her to sleep with her, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. If there was time, I could read you a little more, uh, because she knows who he, he is. She doesn't trust him. And she says, what are you going to give me? And to make a long story short, she says, what, he says, what do you want? And she says, give me your staff and your signet and cord. Now, staff and signet and cord, what does that mean in today's language? In today's language, it's the equivalent of saying, I want your driver's license and your credit card. Really? If you study what those were, your signet and cord were your, your signature. In Korea, we call it a dojang. That would identify who you were, without a doubt. And, like your driver's license, and of course, your staff was the symbol of your authority. So it's almost like credit card and driver's license. And this is Judah. He hands them over to her right away. Opposite of Joseph, Joseph flees when, when temptation attacks him. Judah seeks out sin. Radical contrast between the two brothers here. So, I would call Judah, what kind of a man was he? Sadly, a promiscuous old man. I use the word promiscuous, you know what I mean by that. It's also the D, yeah? So this is the kind of man Judah was. Very sad story. But the story is not over. Not over yet. Look at verse 24. About three months later, word reached Judah that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was pregnant as a result of prostitution. Now notice Judah's response. Bring her out and burn her. Think about that for a moment. Three months before... Wait a minute. What do you think might have gone through Judah's mind? Three months before, he knew what he had done. And so right now, he makes an immediate judgment, which is very opposite of jo Joseph. Judah condemns instantaneously, whereas Joseph forgives beforehand. You see why the two stories are side by side? Fascinating. But the story's not over yet, folks. This is, this is the bad part of the story, so to speak. But let's carry on. We've got to get to the good news. Okay, let's get to the good news. Number nine, what kind of a man was he? He was a quick to condemn judge. Jesus warns us, Matthew 7, what? Judge not that you be not judged. Okay, this quick judgment. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be fruit inspectors. Don't forget that. By their fruits ye shall what? Know them. Don't forget that part. We're not, we're not to judge the heart, but we can see the fruits. But be careful. Here was Judah quick to condemn. But the story is not over. Here is a, an important verse. As they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns this identification seal, the driver's license, and the credit card, okay, and the walking stick, in today's language I'm using it, is the father of my child. Do you recognize them? Oh, interesting. Folks, here Judah had a choice. Judah was... Looking at this now, he could have said, wait a minute, I have been hunting for my driver's license, my credit card, or the walking stick and the identification seal for the last three months. I should have known it's that wicked woman. Son number one marries her, he dies. Son number two marries her, he dies. Now you see why I didn't want to give my third son to her, because I knew she was wicked. Could he have done that? Yes, he was the leader of the clan. He could have. But Judah was faced once again with his sin. Previously, he had fled, left his father, inconsolably crying, mourning for the loss of Joseph. But here in that next verse, verse 30, 26, chapter 38, verse 26, there's a hint of hope for a heart change. Let's look at it carefully. And Judah, what's the next word? What's the word? Acknowledge. By the way, that one verse has three important points. Write down A. When you're faced with a challenge, acknowledge it. Yes, yes, it is so. Well, if it's a challenge you have, let's say, men generally seem to have a problem with speeding. Yes, yes, I have a problem. Not, well, you know, I suffer from lead in the foot. That's an excuse. <laughs> yes, I do speed. Okay, acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Now, notice he goes further. He acknowledged them 
and said, story's not over, she was right and I was wrong. Why? Since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Say specifically, the reason I'm speeding is because I don't get up early enough in the morning. (laughs) I'm always rushing because I don't go to bed early enough at night. Okay? Look at what the reason is. Acknowledge. The second day, admit. Aha. Acknowledge. Yes, I've got a problem. Admit. Why do you have it? And if it's a problem, you're not exercising enough. Well, because da 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 da. So, yes, I'm struggling. I'm not healthy because I'm not exercising. Why? Because I'm not doing this. So admit, acknowledge you've got a problem. Admit what the reason is, and look at the rest of the story. And he did not sleep with her again. The so, third A: act. You acknowledge. You admit. You acknowledge your problem. You admit why you've got the problem, and then you act in accordance with that. You don't do it anymore. Okay? Don't make an excuse. Acknowledge, yes, I, I'm a speedster, yes. Number two, because I don't go to bed at night on time. And then act on it. Get to bed at, at night. Okay? Get up in the morning. I use that one intentionally. Because once I used a different illustration and I, I know people didn't like it. So I'm avoiding uh, an illustration that uh, may step on toes. Except the toes of the drivers who's, who got lead in their feet. Okay, acknowledge, what's the second A? Admit, and the third A? Act. And that will help you in your spiritual life. Judah did exactly that, and now for the good news. So now you've got to move along with me rapidly. Genesis 42, verse 2 through 4. Because the evidence is that Judah, folks, had a complete radical transformation in his life. How do I know it? Look what the ESV says. And he said, this is Jacob now speaking to his sons uh, three or four chapters later on. Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Ten brothers went down. Now, how many brothers were there all together? Twelve. Joseph is in Egypt. I'm suggesting that uh, Judah has come home. How do I know? Because the next verse tells me. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. What's the evidence? Judah has come back home. Are you with me? Judah has returned. It was very clear, implied there. Judah returned to his home, and as we'll see, to his faith. Okay? To the faith of his fathers. Let's move on. The next chapter, chapter 43, verses 2 through 4. Following chapter, when the grain they had brought back the first time from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his son, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said, ah, I told you Judah had come home, right? The Bible is very clear. The following chapter identifies him by name. But Judah said, the man wasn't joking when he warned that we couldn't see him Unless, again, unless Benjamin came along. If you had let him come with us, we will go down. If you let him come with us, we will go down and buy some food. By the way, who is the man? Who's the man? Joseph, they don't know who the man is by name, but it's Joseph. We know the backstory. The man says we can't come down. Now, what's interesting, when you have a chance, go back and read chapter 42 at home. Reuben, the oldest, had spoken up in chapter 42 and had said, Dad... We need to go down for more grain. Send baby brother Benjamin with me. I'll take care of him. And if I don't bring him back, um, um, Dad, if I don't bring him back, um, 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 you, can, you can kill two of my sons. Now, tell me, who are you, of you are grandparents? Raise your hand quickly. Any grandparents here? I won't put you on the spot. Raise it. Yeah, many hands going up. How many of you grandparents would love Reuben's reasoning? If you don't bring my son back, I will kill two of my grandkids. What kind of logic, Reuben? But this is Reuben. This is Reuben. You can see later on, unstable as water. And so, Jacob ignored Reuben in chapter 42. But now, Judah steps forward. And Judah says, I'll take him. And, and look at verse 8 and 9. Judah said to Israel, his father, to Jacob, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah says, Dad, trust me. Trust me. Don't kill my two kids, okay? Trust me. He says, trust, and is Judah trustworthy? Sure enough. 
Judah becomes a trusted son. Let's move on with the story. And Judah, his brethren also, they are down now in chapter 44, verse 14. Judah, his brethren also, cometh in unto the house of Joseph, and he is yet there, Young's little translation, and they fall before him to the earth. Now, incidentally, I chose that intentionally. Because Young's literal translation, if you ever have a copy of that Bible, it's hard to read, but it's very literal. And it says, Judah, his brothers also, cometh. The focus of the story is Judah. His brothers are just tangential. It's Judah cometh, his brothers also. Judah has become a leader. And this is the time, by the way, you know the story, when uh, the, the golden cup was in Benjamin's sack and they've come back now. Remember, you know the story. They come back and now Judah comes, his brothers also. The Bible begins to show that Judah has become a major leader amongst the twelve brothers. Or rather, right now, the, the eleven brothers. <laughs> He's the, the, the governor, they don't realize, is Joseph. Verse 16, Judah said, Oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we plead? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. Plural. Notice what he's saying. For our sins. And by the way, what's he talking about? They found the cup in Benjamin's sack. And Benjamin was considered guilty. He's saying our sins implied is possibly... He's looking back at what they had done to Joseph because when they talked about it, they said, you see, we shouldn't have been so nasty to Joseph back then. They talk about it. They're realizing, they feel they're being... Punished now, that's their concept for their past. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves. We and our brother who had your cup in his sack. Judah and all of his brethren come back and say, listen, we're all your slaves. And of course, Joseph says, no, 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 I won't do that. But the governor, unnamed still, the governor says, I won't do that. I'll only consider the one guilty who stole the cup. But by this time, Judah has become a bold spokesman. So he's come back home, returned home, a trusted son, a bold spokesman. And now... Go with me to verse 18. Judah is a bold spokesperson. That's number three. Judah is a bold spokesman. Now notice verse 18. And by the way, from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 34, is the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. By whom? Who's speaking? Judah. The longest speech in the book of Genesis is by Judah. Judah speaks, he says. Then Judah stepped forward, the Bible says, and said, My Lord, let me say just this one word to you. Be patient with me for a moment, for I know you could have killed me in an instant as though you were Pharaoh himself. Great respect for the governor, who he doesn't realize is his younger brother. This is Judah. He steps forward. And he begins to plead, by the way. If you go in your Bibles, open your Bibles, we'll go there a moment. Uh, I've been taking you to the screen, but I want you to notice now what's happening. Genesis chapter 44. By the way, it's an easy chapter to remember. 4-4, four, four, and we'll show you in a minute. Vital verse. From chapter, <clears throat> chapter 44, verse 18, Judah is the one pleading now. Look at verse 20. And uh, he's, he's telling him, verse 19, firstly, My Lord asked his servants... On the first trip, obviously, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his young age who is young. His brother is what? Wait a minute. This is Judah speaking to whom? And what is he telling Joseph? You're dead. Have you ever had somebody come and tell you that you're dead? Here it is. I had not seen this. I'd read the story. And his brother, you... Of course, he doesn't know it's him. And his brother is dead. Imagine how Joseph must have felt when he heard for the first time, this is on the first trip, that the family believes he is dead. Imagine the emotions going through him. And his brother is dead, sir. And there's Joseph. Huh? My, my, everybody thinks I'm dead? A fascinating story, okay? So, and so this is Judah reminding the governor, Joseph, of his story. I've got it here. Um, Notice what he says. Skip down to verse 31. I'm on the, on the screen. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. This is the boy of his old age. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We will be responsible for bringing his gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Now, as you read the story carefully, it's interesting. This is Judah now. He has become a changed man. Previously, Judah said, let's get rid of this guy. Okay? Now, despite the fact, notice that Jacob is still playing favorites. How do I know? Verse 20. 
So we said to my Lord, we have an aged father, a young brother, the child in his old age, this one's full brother is dead, and since he is the only one by, by that mother who is left, his father, what does it say? His father dotes on him. <laughs> That's correct English from the New American Bible. His father dotes on him. Now here is Judah saying, Daddy is still playing favorites. <laughs> Are you with me? That's what it amounts to. Firstly, the father had played favorites on the first son, Joseph, who he doesn't know he's talking to. Now he's saying his father dotes on him. But Judah this time, the first time Judah was saying, let's get rid of the brother. Now, now, brother number two, father is still playing favorites, but Judah has changed. Judah's life has changed. Now Judah is concerned. In fact, I put it this way. Judah now loves despite his dad's faults. Interesting. Judah has gone through a transformation. Story's not over. So Judah, let's put it back there. I know some people are writing it down. Judah now loves despite dad's faults. Judah recognizes dad, Israel, has not yet changed. He's still playing favorites, but Judah loves his father. Judah's been going through a process, what we call the big English word, sanctification. His life has been transformed. Now, verse 33, key verse. I know this is easy to remember. It's the first book of the Bible, and it's 4433, for those mathematically inclined. Okay? We have 4433. And I call this the substitution verse in Genesis. Because notice what he says. Please, speaking to the governor, please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Slavery in Egypt was a fate to be feared worse than what? Death. Benjamin has been considered what? Guilty. Right? You read the story. What is Judah really saying right now? Let me, you're right, take the place of the guilty. In this part of the story, who does Judah remind you of? Of Jesus. I'm willing to die. Slavery in Egypt, the fate worse than death. I'm willing to die for the guilty. And let the lad return to his father. The change in the life of Judah has been radical, folks. Incredible. Which is why I love the story of Judah. Yes, there's that sandwich story in chapter 38. It's unpacked further and further. But let's finish our story in a nutshell. Judah is willing to die for the guilty. Judah is willing to die for the guilty. Genesis 44, verse 33. Last night I mentioned that this story I was going to share today is my wife Linda's favorite Bible story, obviously, other than the story of Jesus. Judah is going to die, willing to die for the guilty. The story is not over yet. They have to return home. Remember that? And of course, does Jacob, Israel, know what has happened to Joseph? No. And so they come home, and when they come home, they gave him, the father, this report. Judah, uh, sorry, Joseph is still alive. He is at this moment governor of all Egypt. But he, Jacob, Israel, was as one stunned, for he did not believe them. <laughs> of course not. For more than 20 years, he has believed that Joseph is dead. Suddenly now, he hears the news that he's alive. And the Bible says he didn't believe it until he saw, with his own eyes, the wagons laden and everything. And then... He began to believe. But what do you think had to happen at that moment in time? When they said, Joseph is alive. What do you think the brothers had to do? Confess. You're right. Absolutely. They had gotten their father to believe for two decades that Joseph was dead. In fact, they had believed it themselves. Ever happened to you or ever you heard people? They convinced themselves. They, they tell a lie so many times that they believe it themselves. And that's where Judah said, his brother is dead. He believed it. They all believed it because they had told that lie so much, they believed it. And now they've got to come back with the truth and they have to confess. That confession, by the way, is corroborated in the book Patriarchs and Prophets and uh, Jacob forgave his erring sons. Judah confesses his guilt. He apologizes. Obviously, he had to do it then. And Dad, I'm the one who said, sell my brother. In fact, that's the reason for the title for this message. From barter to what? To martyr. From sell my brother to take me as a slave. A radical transformation has happened in the life of Judah. Let's move on rapidly to the end now. Genesis 49. 
By the way, the story of Judah covers a large section of Genesis, as you can see. I'm challenging you to go home and read this fascinating story of the life of Judah, how God worked incredibly through his life. Now we get to chapter 49. Jacob, Israel, calls the brothers together and says, Come on, sons, I've got to talk to you. I know some Bibles say Jacob's prophecy or Jacob's blessings. Well, I like uh, the one that has a subheading that says Jacob's last words. Because it's not really blessings. How do I know? When it gets to the first son, Reuben, you are unstable as water. You will not excel. Oh, bad news. How would you like to stand around your father's bedside? He's about to die and all he is doing is cursing you. And I mean curses, you know, not cussing, but you're not going to excel. You're, you've been a bad boy. You read about Reuben, you, oh, wait a minute, hold on, Dad. And then Dad says, okay, let me talk about Simeon and Levi. Huh, I'm not going to let them off the hook either. Brothers of violence, let not my, you know, let not me be in the assembly. Oh, and Simeon and Levi, bad news. <laughs> you read the story, chapter 39. Then he gets to Asher and he, later on he says, he will produce which foods? Just a little bit about Asher. When he gets to Joseph, there are five verses of blessings for Joseph. But I'm focusing right here on the other sibling, Judah. So let's go to Genesis 49. Open our Bibles now. Genesis 49. I want you to track with me here the blessings that are going to be given to Judah. Genesis 49. I'm going to look at verse 8 firstly. I'm in the New King James and then we'll go onto the screen. Genesis 48, uh, 49 verse 8. Genesis 49 verse 8. Judah. Judah. You are he whom your brothers shall what? praise. Now, please be careful. Back then, when they named their kids, I know some Bible have a footnote and they say Judah means praise. That's a simplistic interpretation. It's really Judah, and some Bibles point out, Judah sounds like praise. And that's true. It sounds like the Hebrew word. Judah is the word Yehuda. The Hebrew word is Yehuda. Notice, Yehuda, Yehuda. It's a pun. We call it in English a play on words. So, Judah, Yehuda, you will be Yehuda. You get that? Yehuda, Yehuda. It's an intentional pun. So, Judah, he, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Wait a minute, Jacob, are you confused? Who had the dream of his brothers bowing before him? Joseph, what do you think Judah, what's happening to Judah now? Jacob is essentially transferring the blessings. So, let's look on the screen. Your brother's Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Praise the first P. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Power. Notice the P is here. Your father's children, your father's children, your brothers shall bow down before you. Prestige. Oh, there's so much we can unpack from the entire, entire uh, section on the life of Judah. But we have to hurry on. I want to encourage you to go home and read it for yourself. Let's go to verse 10. The rod of authority will not be taken from Judah and he will not be without a lawgiver. In other words, from the line of Judah will come the kings and ultimately until Shiloh comes. Ah, did you know who Shiloh is? Even back as far as the Qumran caves, you've heard of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls during the time of the Qumran Scrolls. They found out that back then they understood Shiloh referred to whom? The coming Messiah. They understood that correctly. Shiloh is another name for the Messiah. Until the Shiloh, the Messiah, comes and to him, now it identifies who Shiloh is, to him shall be the obedience of the people, that is, of the nations. Some Bibles bring that out. The nations, who alone, to whom alone is the obedience of the nations due? Jesus. That's right. In other words, through Judah's line will come both the kings as well as the king of kings. Both the monarchs as well as the Messiah. Through Judah's line, folks. Not through Joseph's line. Fascinating. Why? Why does the Bible do this with the story? It's a, I love the picture of scriptures. Yes, I'm not wanting to minimize the one son. Stand for the rights of the heaven swore. But I thank God that if we do fall, we've got a picture here of Judah and God blesses Judah. With the most important blessings. Why? Why do the most important blessings not go to Reuben? He should have gotten them right. Firstborn. Am I not correct? The firstborn is supposed to get the most important blessings. It didn't go to the firstborn. It didn't go to the favored son. Who is the favored son? Joseph. But who did it go to? Not to the firstborn. Not to the favored. But to the forgiven. Are you with me, folks? That's the kind of God we serve. The most important blessings go to the forgiven son. In other words, Judah, ah, before we get to that one. Oh, I've I got to show you that. If you read chapter 49, just thinking about that now. If you read 49, 
Jacob identifies the sins of Reuben, number one, the sins of Simeon and Levi, he could have turned to Judah and said, and now my fourthborn son, you wicked boy. Of all the trickery, you were the one who said, sell Joseph into slavery. My favorite son. Then, after that, you saw me mourning day in and day out, inconsolably, and instead of confessing, you let me cry and weep, and then you run away, you go live out there, you make friends with an infidel, you marry outside the faith, you're an absentee father, you raise these rebel sons, then, of course, your sons die, then your wife dies, then you see who you think is a woman of the street, you proposition her, you actually get your own daughter-in-law pregnant, and then you want to kill her to cover the evidence, you wicked boy! Could Jacob have done that? Yes! But you can read the entire chapter 49, and guess what, folks? There's not one hint of any possibility of sin in the life of Judah. Why not? Because Jacob treats Judah as though he had what? Never sinned. No record. What is the lesson there for us? When you and I turn to God, no matter what a mess of our lives we have made, and by the way, not only our own lives, Judah had messed up the lives of his sons. He'd messed up the life of his daughter-in-law. Judah had made a major mess of not only his own life, but of other people's lives. By the way, that's what sin does. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about making decisions. Judah had made many, many horrible decisions throughout his life. We'll talk about decision-making this afternoon. How to make good, biblical, Christ-centered, appropriately applied decisions. Judah had messed up big time. But here's the good news of the story. No matter what we do, we serve a forgiving God. And I am so thankful that God saves us, not just to the uttermost. I've added the word, God saves us to the guttermost. God will reach down and rescue us. And now we go to the end of the story. Fast forward to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, one more verse that I want to look at on the story. Revelation 5, I've got the English Standard Version here up on the screen. Revelation chapter 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Reuben. Is that what the Bible says? The firstborn? The preeminent son? No. The lion of the tribe of Joseph. The petted boy, as Ellen White calls him. No. It's not the preeminent son. It's not the petted son. It's the pardoned son. And that is whom? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that God doesn't give up on me. I'm so thankful, and you are thankful, that God doesn't give up on you. Right? This is the kind of God we serve. This is the forgiving God. So today, folks, as I look at the story of Judah, Ultimately, it's a story that gives me hope. It tells me that God can take this man from barter to martyr. From mercenary to merciful. He's willing to die for the guilty. From liar, he lied to his father, to now he's become a leader. God can take anyone and transform our characters. Change us. Don't you love that God? Oh, we serve a wonderful God. I want to make an appeal to you today. Two appeals. To you, firstly. Anybody here? Do you know somebody like Judah? A member of the faith? A member of your family? A member maybe somebody who has been a Seventh-day Adventist, a Christian, who has drifted away. Anybody know somebody like that? Raise your hand. I want to see how many of you know Judas. Raise your mind. That's almost every hand. I want to challenge you. Go and share with them the story of Judah. Tell them about God's grace. Tell them about how God is waiting for them to come back. And sometimes, Pastor Bob, I'm not sure if we are as willing as God to take somebody back. And over time, when, they've, when you've seen the changes, to even allow them, like Judah, to become a leader. We have a difficult time with that subject. But God does it, folks. God will rescue to the guttermost, pull people back by His grace.
transforming sinners. That's why Jesus came. So here's my, here's my appeal. How many of you, if and when God opens the door, you will speak to, encourage, urge that Judah that you raised your hand about to come back to the Lord. Let me see the hands of those who are, if the Lord opens the door, when He does, you're willing to do it. Raise high. I want to be praying for you in a minute. Many hands are going up, Pastor. We've got to reach out and encourage people. Tell them it was not to Joseph, it was not to Reuben, it was Judah who got the best blessings. The one who came back. That's the kind of gracious God we serve. Judah came back and God blessed him. And one more request. How many of you, listening to the story of Judah, want to say, Lord, if that's the kind of God we serve, and we see it in the Bible, I want to serve you for the rest of my life. Keep your hands up. I want to pray for you. Holy Father, you see hands going up all over. Thank you for the story of Judah. Thank you, Lord, for telling us once again of your grace. Lord, we're raising our hands today because we love you and we want to serve this kind of gracious God. Thank you for this beautiful illustration of how you can transform a sinner's heart to become a saint someone who is willing to even die for others. Thank you for the story of Judah. Help us to be like him in that he was willing to die for the guilty. Help us to become, in other words, like Jesus, our Savior. In his name, let all God's people say,